begin a few sermons on Advent next week, but we had one more episode to get to Jonah. We couldn't wait until uh, January to get to him, so we're closing out our series here on this little uh, four-series episodes of Jonah, Jonah chapter 4. So if you turn in your Bible to Jonah chapter 4, if you don't have a Bible, there's a blue Bible in front of you, page 775. And reading this chapter this week, it reminds me of like your Thanksgiving meal. Uh, there's too many sides for one plate to hold. You have that experience? Like you have your plate and you're like, I really want all these things, but they don't fit on one plate. And that's sort of like Jonah 4. There's so many things in Jonah 4, they, they're just not all going to fit on one sermon plate. Uh, so I'm going to do my best to highlight the things that the Lord brought to my mind this morning, but there's so much more here than, than can be said in one sermon. So let's stand together and we'll begin our reading in Jonah chapter 3 verse 10 and continue to the end of the chapter. When God saw what they, the Ninevites, did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But this displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said... Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city and made a booth for himself there. And he sat under it in the shade till he, could, he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint, and he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor? Nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? You may be seated. Take a moment to reflect together on God's word. If you grew up in the South, as I did in the 70s, and your family were good members of a Southern Baptist church, then if a Billy Graham crusade come, came anywhere near your town to keep your membership card in the church, you went to at least one, one of the crusade services. 
you drove there and you sat there and you went through the crusade experience and that's what I did in the 70s as an elementary child the Billy Graham crusade came near my hometown and I don't remember too much about it other than it was a massive crowd I mean as an elementary school you know child I hadn't been in that many crowds before and just the size of the crowd was overwhelming and then I remember at the end when Billy Graham uh, gave his last, you know, piece of his sermon, he offered an invitation, he extended an invitation. And I don't know what they sang, but my guess is just as I am is probably what they sang. And, and, and hundreds of people just streamed forward after uh, the invitation. Now, try to imagine for a moment Billy Graham standing in front of 120,000 lost people and no one responds. And then you, just by uh, providence, end up behind stage. And Billy Graham comes off the stage going, yes! Nobody responded my inv- to my invitation today. That's so awesome. Nobody re- repented. Nobody got saved. And he was celebrating. I mean, wouldn't that be Ridiculous. I mean, you've gone to all this trouble to come to a city, to set everything up. You've preached a, a message that you feel like the Lord has given to you. And here, nobody responds. And, and, and instead of being sad about that, he's actually celebrating it. it. It seems almost impossible. And I say almost because we have Jonah. We have Jonah, the evangelist, who, who got a call by God, and, and tried to get out of the call. Then he had a, a, a venture to the bottom of the world. And then he got a second chance. Remember that? Second chance. God gives him a second chance. Jonah goes. He, he says what the Lord says. He preaches to the entire city. And then everyone, let them all call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way. Who knows, God may turn towards us. And that's exactly what happens at the end of chapter 3. And at this point, you think, this is where the story ends. And many of us really don't know more than this part of the story. Jonah gets out of the whale. He preaches, people come to faith. And you just think at this point, it would be, and Jonah went home to Jerusalem rejoicing that he got a front row seat at this massive revival. That's what you would think. But when we turn to Jonah 4... It's like we run into Jonah backstage. We see what he really thinks about this 120,000 people coming to the Lord in one sermon. He's actually, and it's stunning to say, he's angry at God for saving people. He's the evangelist who doesn't want anyone to be saved. And when you look at this chapter, you see a lot of depressing and disturbing characteristic traits of Jonah. And you see a lot of impressive and encouraging character traits about God. So I want to look at that this morning. Let's go back to verses 1 through 3. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. You might have a little notation there that he thought it was exceedingly evil what God had done. And he was angry. So he prayed, Lord, This is what I said. Remember, I was back in my own country, minding my own business, being a priest in your house. And you called me and I said, I don't want to go because I know you're merciful. I know you're gracious. I know you're slow to anger. I know you're steadfast 
your, your, your abounding and steadfast love. I know you would relent. So I don't, I don't want to have any part of this, verse 3. I'd just rather die than see you be graceful. I mean, Jonah doesn't look good here, does he? Jonah's anger comes up twice in this passage, in this chapter, and it's just helpful to notice what makes Jonah angry. Because anger can be stirred up for, for a lot of reasons, but one reason it's stirred up is when an idol gets disturbed. You don't even know you have the idol until you get, get angry, and then you go, why, why am I so angry? Something got disturbed. Something deep embedded in me got disturbed. I didn't like it, so I, I'm, I'm angry. It's, a, it's something you see on the surface like a volcano. When you see the, the lava just sort of popping out of the volcano, everyone knows, hey, something's happening underneath. Something's boiling underneath, and I just get to see a little bit of it here. That's what we see with Jonah. He's just angry, and something underneath is churning in Jonah. And we see what's boiling, verse 2, I knew it. That's what I've been saying all, all along, all the way back when I was at home, God, I knew this about you. It sounds like Jonah's been holding on to this anger the whole time. And then he does something really, really surprising to me. He quotes God to God. This verse 3 is a quote. It's a quote from Exodus 34. So I don't, I don't think I would quote God to God. I'm not sure that would be my, you know, first reaction here. But what's so surprising, just listen to how surprising, why he chose this passage. The passage in, in, in chapter 34 comes right after the Israelites make the golden calf. You remember this? So Moses, God sends Moses to, send, to save the Hebrews, the Israelites. They miraculously cross the Red Sea. They're coming out into the desert to worship. That's the primary purpose of them being saved is to worship. And then they're going to worship and enter the promised land. And Moses comes to Mount Sinai. He goes up and visits with God. It seems like a long time. So the people decide, hey, let's make a golden calf and worship it. These people who had just miraculously been saved from 400 years of enslavement after a few short weeks decide, you know what, let's just go back to worshiping our old gods. Now, when Moses comes back down and God and Moses see what happens, what do these people deserve? Lightning bolts, right? I mean, just, you're, you're done. I, I'm done. I mean, after all that you've seen, and here you are, you, you pitch in all of your gold, so everybody's involved with it, you make a golden calf, I'd be done. Aren't you glad I'm not God? I'd just be like, I'm done. And what does God say? about that to Moses. Moses, I know you're angry, but trust me, I'm merciful. I'm gracious. I'm slow to anger, and I'm abounding in steadfast love. That's what he quotes, Exodus 34, 6. At the moment that these people definitely deserve justice and judgment, that's the moment God says, but I'm going to overlay that with my mercy my grace, my steadfast love. It's incredible. And what's so surprising about Jonah's quote is that who's, who's, who was being saved by God's mercy in Exodus 34? His own relatives. Does that make sense? He's saying, I know you were merciful and gracious to us. I remember that. 
But what is Jonah saying? I don't want it to go past me. I'd like to just be the reservoir for all your grace and mercy, but all these people back here I don't like, I don't want it to spill out on them. I don't have any interest in them being saved. I just have your, an interest in your grace coming towards me. The evangelist wants grace for me, but not for thee. Now, what would cause this? What, th- this seems just crazy to me. What would cause somebody who's personally experienced in their history the grace of God, who's personally experienced the grace of God by being saved by a great fish, who's personally experienced the grace of God by, by given a second chance, what would cause them to hold on to some idol underneath that's still boiling with anger? And you, you could guess what it might be. Here are a couple of thoughts that I have. First of all, I think Jonah had a deeply embedded sense, an unhealthy sense of nationalism and racism. It was just deeply embedded in Jonah. And even one trip to the bottom of the sea couldn't get it all out. For Jonah, salvation for the Ninevites wasn't something to celebrate. They they were a threat. And he didn't see himself as equal to them. You see you see what's happening? If if I need grace, and I know I need grace, and this person I hate needs grace, and I get God's grace and saved, and they get God's grace and saved, well, then we're both equal, right? We're both in need of grace. And I just can't have those people be equal to me. I just can't have that. I, I sort of deserve it because, I mean, I'm, I've only done half as bad as they do, have done. You see what happens is I see myself in a way that God doesn't see me, and Jonah just can't handle that. He's better than people. He's above these people. And, and he just can't be on the same team with the Ninevites. Of course, we don't have to just stay in Jonah to see this. It happens in every culture. It's happened in ours. Many of you are familiar with the history of Wilmington, 1898, the insurrection and massacre in our city on November of 1898. It did happen on November the 9th. The white city leaders of Wilmington got together and they actually wrote the White Declaration of Independence in Wilmington. And they stood on the courthouse steps that you can go down to today and read the White Declaration of Independence. See, at that point in history, Wilmington was more evenly divided in its power structure, black and white, and the whites just didn't, couldn't handle that. So they, they, they killed people. They pushed the black people, especially the leaders, out of the city. They wrote the White Declaration of Independence. And let me just read part of it to you. We, the undersigned citizens of the city of Wilmington and the county of New Hanover, do hereby declare that we will no longer be ruled and will never again be ruled by men of African origin. The time has passed for the intelligent cities, citizens of this community, the white citizens. The time has passed for the intelligent citizens of this community to be ruled by Negroes. You feel that threat? We are prepared to treat the Negroes with justice and consideration in all matters which do not involve sacrifices. 
sacrifices of the interest of the intelligent and progressive people of the community. You hear that? I mean, we can deal with them, but if there's any sacrifice on us, then you know, they're, we're not equal. This, this deeply embedded sense of nationalism and racism is not, not just in Jonah. It's not just in 1898 in Wilmington. It's today. It's, it's all over the world. See, if both Jonah and the Ninevites need God's grace, then they're equal. And Jonah just can't have that. So it disrupts his idol of himself, and he gets angry. Connected to this, here's another way, I think, why Jonah is angry is apart from just the racism and nationalism, he has enemies. These are the enemies. These are the invaders, the people that are oppressive to him and his people. And so he hates them, and he just can't have any compassion for his enemies. And I would say hatred for a people group that you're an evangelist to isn't a great character trait, right? I mean, if you hate the people you're trying to evangelize, somehow in your nonverbal body language that's going to come out scholar d.a carson there's a great deal of anger in america much of it's coming for the from the american right the problem is when you're so busy hating everybody and denouncing them it's very difficult to be an effective witness for jesus speaking of jesus he says and we know this from the sermon on the mount I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you can be sons and daughters of your Father who is in heaven. So your Father who is in heaven loved his enemies, people who were putting him to death. So if you'd like to follow him, then you love your enemies, people that you hate, people that might be putting you to death. But Jonah just can't make that happen. And I wonder if it's possible for me or anyone else in here that you have somebody on your judgment list that really you'd rather see them get judged than receive grace. If you ever had that person, then you understand what it's like to be Jonah. So what does Jonah do? classic person who doesn't get their way imagine the three-year-old you see god asking the question do you want to get well what does jonah say nothing he just stomps away i mean no response god asks you a question just no response i'm going to take my marbles and i'm going to go over here and i'll play in a different circle i just don't want to have anything to do with you so he goes outside the city he builds this little temporary shelter and he just sits there hoping condemnation is going to come down on the city Verse 5, so he went out of the city and sat down east of the city and made a booth for himself. Paul Tripp says this, Jonah chose to live in the claustrophobic kingdom of one. Mm. Jonah chose to live in the claustrophobic kingdom of one. He built a shelter for himself. It's a phone booth. I mean, some of you don't even know what that is, a phone booth. (laughs) That's not in my notes. I probably wouldn't have written that down. It's a tiny box. He's built it, and only he can fit in. 
He doesn't want God to fit in. He doesn't want the Ninevites to fit in. He wants to be the kingdom, and the people of the kingdom are him. What a, what a terribly small kingdom for Jonah, for any human being. Where, where you know best, where you're better than others, where God should operate according to your commands. Anybody familiar with this little kingdom? Oh, when I read this, I was like, I'm Jonah. I don't want to be this person, but I, I see these characteristic traits of Jonah leaking out in my own life. There are people that I'd rather see have judgment than have grace. There are times I love to run to the little phone booth of the kingdom of Paul Phillips so no one else can get into it. I'm always right. I know better than God, and I certainly know better than you. It seems comfortable, but man, it gets small. It gets tight. And what we're witnessing here as I read through this, this past week is it feels like to me Jonah's shrinking. I mean, he came out of the fish. He entered Nineveh. He was willing to, to make his proclamation. And then he just starts shrinking down all the way through chapter 4. And I don't know if you've read this book. You should put it on your reading list. It's a very short book a fictional book called The Great Divorce. It's by C.S. Lewis. And just to give you a sense of what's happening, the, the, the setting for the book is there's a bus ride that you can take from hell to heaven. And some people get on the bus ride, and when they come to heaven, or like the beginning of heaven, they get off the bus and they're greeted by somebody who's in heaven that they knew from earth. A friend, a coach, a teacher, a spouse, whatever it is, and the whole book are these little dialogues between a person coming from hell and a person in heaven having this dialogue. And they're always trying to get the person in hell to let go of some things that are, they just can't see about themselves and enter into heaven. And so at the very end of the book, a stunningly beautiful woman comes to meet and greet her husband from hell. Uh, no comment there. But as she approaches her husband she notices there's actually two people coming towards her. Her husband, who's very small, the way Lewis describes it is, have you ever seen the, the old picture of the, of the organ grinder and the monkey? And he's the monkey. He's the small person, and there's a sort of a, a fake actor over here that's a projection of who he wishes he was. And this beautiful woman comes in, and she bends down, and the whole, the whole dialogue, she only talks to the real husband. And the, the whole thing is, she's bending down, and he, he's arguing with her, but he never speaks, only the, the actor speaks. And she never notices the actor, and she's like, come on, come on, that's, that's, not, that's not you, that's not real. And the actor makes an argument, and he shrinks. And she keeps bending down and bending down until Lewis says he was the size of the chain in which he was holding connected to the phantom. I mean, he was so small like an insect. And then suddenly he was gone. So, so the woman comes and only addresses this shrinking man 
hoping that somehow the real person could somehow she could blow on this little coal of truth and get him to come up and this person could shrink but he shrinks for the whole story and then he just disappears that's basically what's happening in jonah 4 god's coming and don't miss this it's really the the most beautiful moment in the whole story i think Jonah's shrinking. He's in his little claustrophobic kingdom of one. And God comes and he bends down. And what does God do? It's very important. He asks him a question. Hey, can we be in a dialogue together? I I mean, God knows everything. But he's coming in saying, I mean, why are you angry? I mean, Jonah is really losing it. He's angry at God. He's angry at the people. He hates what God is doing, and he hates these people. And yet God comes, and instead of judgment, he says, Hey, hey, buddy, why are you angry? Think about how often God does this in the Bible. People in the Bible have completely blown it. And they completely deserve judgment at the moment of their blowing it. And yet, when God comes in, he bends all the way down, and he just asks him a question. Where does it start? Where does everything start for me in the Bible? Genesis 3. Adam and Eve have completely blown it. And what does God come in and do? Hey, where, where are you? Adam points to Eve. What does God say to Eve? What did you do? Elijah runs away from God, finds himself in a little cave, and God comes and says, what are you doing here? Peter denies Jesus three times. Peter, do you love me? This is a constant refrain through the Bible. And it's a way of showing us the tremendous mercy and grace of God. This is not what I would have done at all. You're so glad I'm not God. But at the worst moments of these people's lives that have crushed them and in some ways crushed others, he comes down and says, I'm still interested in you. I, I like you. Can, can we have a dialogue together? I don't, you know, it's a bunch of different questions God is asking. Maybe somebody here is getting that question. God's saying, I, I, I know you're angry, you've run away, I know it. Can, can we talk together? I mean, are you just open to a dialogue? I don't know what question it may be. It may be one of these. Where, where are you? What have you done? Why are you here? Do you love me?
you hear one of those questions, don't, don't shrink back. Don't let your false self, don't let your anger, don't let your pride get bigger and bigger. Don't let your justifications... So let's close this. <coughs> Sorry, that didn't work either. <laughs> I gotta find a better way to do that. Let's close the episode out by just noticing how it ends with three questions. Jonah informs God that he'd rather die, verse three and four. If I'm God, I'm saying, Okay, I can arrange that, Jonah. But God instead bends down and says, do you want to get well? Or, or do, you, do you do well to be angry? Jonah's response, like the spoiled child, goes out, puts on it, puts it, gets himself in the claustrophobic kingdom of one. And God, I, you know, I don't think he's scratching his head like what, I should, what he should do, but realizes the, the one-on-one dialogue doesn't work, so maybe I can do an object lesson, like a hands-on experiment. So he noticed this. God notices Jonah's discomfort. It's very important. This little brat who's stomped off, I wouldn't care about the little brat's discomfort. Be happy that he was uncomfortable. But God notices his discomfort. And what does it say? He wants to save Jonah from his discomfort. This is incredible. So he appoints a plant to offer protection. And the word in the Hebrew for discomfort is the same word for evil. And it's used in chapter 1, verse 2, when God notices the evil of the Ninevites. So you're supposed to say, he notices the evil in the Ninevites. He notices the evil in Jonah. And he's come to, to offer some comfort. And what does he do? He puts a plant. He assigns a plant to come and cover Jonah. And then, as an object le- lesson, he sends a worm. Because Jonah doesn't want to be a plant for other people. See, the plant that God sent the Ninevites was Jonah. Jonah, I want you to grow up and I want you to give them this shelter from their discomfort. But he doesn't want to play by God's rule. So God sends a worm. And he removes the plant. And again, beautiful writing. It's how ridiculous how Jonah gets so quickly attached to this plant. You notice it? I mean, he's had one day with this plant. He's exceedingly glad. This is the whole language you're supposed to notice. He's exceedingly glad for the plant. When the plant's gone, what does he say? I should die. Going to get a Christmas gift this year? You're going to be exceedingly glad. Your new phone, and then you jump in the ocean. Oh, I should die. You got any of those things in your life? I mean, you just love it, but you're really too, you're an unhealthy attachment to it. So if it goes away, you think you should just go away. So Jonah sits roasting in his little kingdom, and God bends down and asks the second question. Do you do well to be angry about the loss of this plant? Help me understand that, Jonah. 
See, God's trying to get Jonah's attention to see, Jonah, this is ridiculous. Come on, snap out of it. Can't you see you care more about the plant than the people? Can't you see you care a ton more about your own comfort that's only earthly than the eternal comfort of all these lost people? Any possible application there for anyone here? I care a lot more about my comfort than the eternal comfort of 120,000 people who are lost. God's trying to get Jonah's attention and Jonah's final response, it's not good. Yeah. Yeah, I do well to be angry. I mean, you can just feel the hardness of his heart, can't you not? Angry enough to die. So Jonah, he's, he's shrinking. I don't know if he's even visible at this point. So in the last effort, the third question. Okay, Jonah, you pity the plant for which you didn't labor. You didn't make it grow. It comes up and it goes away. And you've gotten so attached, attached to this plant can't you just be reasonable to think that I should pity the Ninevites, this great city of 120,000 people and cattle? See, you pity the plant, I pity the people. You had nothing to do with the plant. I have everything to do with the people. They're made my image. You're angry and hoping for condemnation. I'm abounding in love, hoping for salvation. Shouldn't I pity the people, Jonah? The end. Aren't you like, there's got to be one more chapter. Some, I mean, come on. Where, where is it? Like, what happens? Paul, nobody ends a series with a cliffhanger. I mean, that's the, 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 the second last one. The last one can't end in a cliffhanger. Does Jonah just disappear? I mean, is, does his heart get so hard like the man in the great divorce that, that the woman's shrink coming down, but at some point he just disappears? Or does God's whisper somehow blow on some kind of burning coal in his life, dead as it may seem, and brings him back to life? Nobody knows. That's the purpose of the story. You get to fill in. I get to fill in. Why? Because we're Jonah. See, you by your life get to write the ending of the story. Will you shrink down? And just stay in a claustrophobic kingdom of one? Or will you love your enemies? Tim Keller says this. We feel that there must be a missing page. Why would this story end so abruptly? The, the book forces us to contemplate our personal destiny. It remains unfinished in order that we may provide the ending ourselves. For we are Jonah. The arrows of God's questions aimed for Jonah are actually aimed at you and I. How will you respond? The arrows of God's questions. Where are you? What have you done? Why are you here? Do you love me? 
for sure, we need a new Jonah, a better Jonah. That's a perfect way to end the series with communion, is it not? The true and better Jonah comes and rides all the way down. The true and better Jonah who comes into Jerusalem and is weeping over the city. Oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, if you'd only known, if you'd only known. I'm weeping for your salvation. I'm not hoping for your condemnation. And what does Jesus do? He goes outside the city. Remember this? For what purpose? To hang on a cross and die for you and me. He could have gone out and just said, I'm getting in my little kingdom of one. But he didn't. He goes outside and says, I'm, gonna, I'm going to love finally and fully the people that hate me. So that people who have hate in their heart for other people will look at me and say, I can try to love my enemy. That's how you know you're a son or a daughter of God. God sent Jonah, Jesus, to die for Jonas. So we don't have to be perfect. We have to trust in the one who really is perfect. And as we do, examine our hearts and see what question is God asking of us? As you prepare your heart, you come to the table, you think about Jesus sitting around the table with Peter who just can't get out of the way of himself. And he says, Peter and the rest of the disciples, I'm going to give my body and my blood because I'm going to bend all the way down to love you. And I want you to remember, every time you're together, when you think maybe I've just gotten too far, my heart's gotten too cold, every time you want to get together, I want you to remember, I'm abounding in grace and mercy and steadfast love, not judgment. Trust again. Warm your heart towards me. Let's pray together. Lord, as we take these elements, very common as they are, we all come forward at some level as Jonah. Somebody who's been saved by grace, and yet there's some, some embedded idol that we just can't let go of, that we get angry about. It causes us to want to retract into this kingdom of one. Would you use these common elements for a miraculous purpose? To break open a cold, hard heart. To bring a, a shrinking soul back to life. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The deacons.